Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. I have Julianne Cusick on today's episode. She has experienced firsthand the devastation of sexual betrayal and the isolation, fear, and shame that can accompany it. But before we get to our guest, our Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group was made specifically for you. We have multiple sessions a day in multiple time zones. Our coaches are the best at helping women identify emotionally and psychologically abusive behaviors, helping them understand the sexual coercion involved with pornography use, and helping them set boundaries as soon as possible to get to safety quickly. We are like the ambulance for women who are being abused. It does take time to establish that safety, but we can help you immediately. You don't have to try to explain to the therapist what's happening for session after session after session. So please check out Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group. If you go to btr.org, click on services, choose daily support group, and you'll be able to see our session schedule. You can hop on one of our sessions from your phone or your computer or a tablet within a matter of hours because we have them running all the time. Go check it out. We hope to see you in a session today. Julianne is the co-founder of Restoring the Soul, where her primary focus is working with women suffering from betrayal trauma as a result of their partners sexual compulsiveness, pornography use, and infidelity. She speaks to the hearts of women from her own story of healing and redemption and has a passion for healing the hearts of hurting women. For the past 15 years, she has met with women one-on-one and led soul care support groups for wives overcoming intimate partner betrayal. So welcome, Julianne. Anne, thank you. It's so great to be here with you today. Let's start with your personal story, which was your baptism by fire into this new world of emotional abuse and psychological abuse that's not widely recognized. Did you recognize your husband's abusive behaviors at first? Well, no, Anne, I didn't. Part of that was because they were hidden and secret from me. But prior to our engagement and subsequent marriage, Michael disclosed to me that in his teens and 20s, he had struggled with pornography and compulsive sexual behaviors. And I was young and naive, Anne. And so I said, well, that's fine. It's in the past, but it's not okay once we got married. And for the first year, he was quote unquote, sober, if you will. But then it was during our second year of marriage that he started to act out unbeknownst to me. And it was shortly after our third wedding anniversary when I caught him in a lie that things started to unravel. And he said the dreaded words that any woman would hate to hear, which is, there's something I need to tell you. And at that point, he started to disclose his struggles, his secrecy, and his behaviors over the last year that I had no idea uh, was going on. Yeah, the dreaded D-Day, right, that everyone talks about. They talk about their life before D-Day and their life after D-Day. And it doesn't always have to be a disclosure of porn use. It can be the day that you recognized whoa, what he's been doing to me has been emotionally abusive or something like that, right? It doesn't always have to be a disclosure on their end. 
D-Day can be just the day you realize that your life was different than you expected. It can be anything that's significant to the individual. For me, my D-Day was the disclosure day. I did not discover Michael's behavior. He disclosed to me, and that's really significant. I've worked with women both ways, and I think more women kind of stumble upon it and discover it. When I caught Michael in a lie, he didn't continue to lie to me, which was a real gift. He started to disclose everything. So I didn't go through that denial period with him gaslighting for months or years. It was the D-Day of, this is the destruction of the marriage that I thought I had and the man that I thought I knew. Mm -hmm. Now you're still married to Michael and you guys are public about your story. Before he disclosed to you, did you have something in your gut or did you suspect something was wrong or was this completely out of the blue for you? The behavior really was completely out of the blue because I had so much respect for him. I just didn't put the two together. Relationally, I felt a disconnection. I didn't feel emotionally connected to him. We had recently celebrated our third anniversary right before this D-Day. You know, he's professing his love to me and had this gift. And I remember thinking, oh, this is a bunch of bull. Like, I don't believe what you're saying. You're saying one thing, but I'm feeling something different. So I think what I did pick up on was there was a real disconnect emotionally in our marriage. He was saying all the right things, but I didn't feel it in my gut. When you were having that feeling of, you know what, something's not quite right. You, again, were disconnected from the fact that it was porn use or infidelity or whatever was going on. But when you had that gut feeling that something wasn't right, did you try any of the common marriage advice like love or serve or forgive or anything like that? And did that work? Did it not work? Well, thankfully, I wasn't exposed to any of those things. And when three weeks later, I did find out the truth. I was devastated. I was angry. And I'm very grateful that we got some good counsel right away. And our mentor said, Julianne, this is not about you at all. This is everything to do with Michael. And if you guys are going to have a marriage, Julianne, you're 0% responsible at this point. And Michael is 100% responsible. And Michael, if she's ever going to trust you again, you have to be completely 100% honest with her. So we embarked on a journey of disclosure, and he continued to tell me things from his past, from whether it was before we'd even met, five, 10 years prior, or within our marriage. It was brutal. It was devastating. But he was committed to bringing everything into the light. And because of that, I was able to begin to slowly trust him over the course of probably that year. Let's talk about the psychological abuse, like the lying and the, and the gaslighting that were happening, right? They were happening before the disclosure, but you didn't know about it. So you've got sexual coercion going on where you have a sexual boundary of no porn use that he is not disclosing to you and other types of behaviors. A lot of people don't like BTR because they think we're too extreme that we call those types of behavior abusive. What is your feeling about that? I think gaslighting is absolutely abusive. Before we had the term clinically, when I started working with women and sharing my story and I would hear the outright lies that women were being told and they were saying, this doesn't make sense to me, for lack of a better term, we just called it crazy making. And I think what was crazy making for me was on one hand, here was this respectable, responsible man that I admired, that I respected, that I trusted. 
and that on the other hand here was this double life this secret life that i didn't know about that his friends didn't know about that was secret and hidden and that just existing was crazy making was gaslighting well it's also flat out lying to you and some of it was direct as in well i'm working when he really wasn't working and thankfully it was a short period it was only a year he was caught before his behaviors got worse and for me thankfully before it was 5 years or 10 years or 20 years which many of the women i work with that's what they're dealing with at that point the gaslighting the psychological trauma or the psychological abuse and the betrayal trauma just increase exponentially the longer that woman is subject to that man living a lie. Now, you're a psychotherapist. Were you a psychotherapist before this happened to you? No, actually, my husband was a trained therapist at the time. He had worked in clinical mental health and then got his master's degree the first year we were married. And then the third year of our marriage, right before all of this came out, I was supposed to start my master's degree. I had audited his program and sat in on all the classes, but it was my turn to go through for credit to actually earn my degree. And really by the grace of God. And I, I just didn't have a piece about doing the degree that summer. And it had been a goal for almost five years. And I withdrew from the program. And almost to the day that the program would have started is when I caught Michael in a lie and he disclosed everything. And there's just no way I would have been able to go through this. I call it my master's degree in trauma from God. <laughs> I couldn't have done that and actually been in school in a master's program. So I would have ended up withdrawing anyway. And then everyone would have known and the shame, because even though we as women haven't done anything shameful, so many of us, I find, feel ashamed, feel ashamed of what our husbands have done. And we somehow feel like we're shamed. And we feel stupid too, right? Like, oh, why didn't I see this? Or why didn't I know? There's a shame that comes along with that too, I think. Yeah, it can. I encourage women not to add that level of shame onto themselves, but many women do feel like, how come I didn't know, you know, what's wrong with me that I didn't see this? Our only crime is that we trusted. Yeah. Yeah. And in order to be in a relationship and be happy and move forward, there has to be some element of trust. So it was like a calculated choice that we made. Why would you get married with this skeptical heart? It's not going to work. Absolutely. Nobody ever marries somebody they don't trust. At least I hope they don't. But then we find out, oh my gosh, our trust has been broken. Now what? And that trust really takes a long time to be rebuilt and restored. And it has a lot to do with how the man responds. Is he angry? Is he defensive? Is he blaming? Is he evasive? Does he continue to not hold the truth? Does he continue to lie and gaslight? Or is he forthcoming and repentant and broken and shattered by the impact of what he's done on his wife's heart? You know, is he pursuing truth and transformation? Yeah. Also, I would say willing to make lifelong amends, living amends of this continually. I'm not saying forever and ever and ever, but I am saying recognizing the damage that he's done and needing to make things better for his wife who he's hurt so badly. Mm -hmm. That was another gift that Michael gave me is he really pursued me relentlessly. And I was not nice to be around. I was like, look, I don't like you. I don't love you. I don't know if I ever will love you. 
but I'm staying because I didn't feel like I really felt released to divorce. In retrospect, you know, I now talk with women and say, you know, wait at least six months to a year before you make a life altering decision because you're in a state of trauma. And so looking back, it was probably that trauma state that I was, I, I can't make a decision right now. So I'm going to kind of watch and wait and see what happens. Yeah, I was in that boat too. I do encourage women to set boundaries immediately, whatever those are, because with me, the gaslighting and the emotional abuse was so extreme and the denial and the blaming and blame shifting and all that, that I had to set a no contact boundary. There was literally not one interaction that I could have where I wasn't somehow blamed or gaslit. And so I set a no contact boundary, but I didn't want to get divorced. And I waited and then he didn't do anything. He didn't pursue me in any way or try to make him nothing. And then he filed for divorce. So I was like, okay, clearly he's not doing anything. And then if he files, that's where his heart is. So I felt a lot of peace knowing that I had set my boundary. I was safe at that point, although not financially safe. And then it also felt very emotionally disturbing to watch what he was doing from a safe distance. I mean, it was heart-wrenching because he did everything I didn't want him to do. First shut down the bank account, then files for divorce, then lies to everybody about what happened. Every single thing that is like a nightmare happened and actually still happening. In fact, I recently found out that he is becoming a therapist. Because I have no contact with him, I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's what's happening. So I will correct the record if that's not the case, but I actually think he's becoming a therapist. And I think he's doing that to prove to everyone that he's the one that's healthy. Even that he's doing that, I'm like, he is full-blown gone. Like there's no part of him that recognizes the truth, I guess. I'm having a lot more compassion for that lately as I heal more. So when people say wait a year to make a decision about things, that is not the same as wait a year to set a boundary. We do not want women to be psychologically abused or emotionally abused for a year while they're thinking about what to do. You can set a boundary immediately and then make those life-altering decisions later or in my case, he like made his way out of my life. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. Thanks for the clarification there. I agree boundaries and I set immediate boundaries with Michael. We had separate bedrooms. He slept on the floor in the living room and I had the bedroom in the apartment to myself. And it was that way for months. There were definitely lots of boundaries in place. When I say, you know, wait a year, it's for those life altering decisions for a divorce, especially when children are involved to try and have as much stability as possible when the woman is already dealing with a crisis situation. And let me say to you, Anne, I'm so sorry. I've heard your podcast before, uh, but to hear your story today, my heart just breaks for the gaslighting and the blaming is so emotionally and psychologically damaging that the person that you've trusted that's supposed to have your back is actually the one that's turned against you in such a vicious way. I'm so sorry. With my no contact boundary, it's been easier and easier and easier. Like it gets easier every year. I become stronger and more healed and able to look at him more with compassion and sort of sorrow rather than like absolute terror. In the beginning, I thought of him as just this like zombie monster who was trying to destroy me. And there was nothing I could do to rationally like talk with him or have a rational conversation or actually talk and get anything that made sense coming back. It's scary. So many of the women that listen to this podcast 
are living in that place of just absolute terror and fear and nightmare. And, and it's hard. I think the other part of my story that's really difficult for women to hear and it's difficult for me to talk about because I don't want to stress anyone out or freak anybody out. But he was like your husband for the first seven years. He was very repentant. I was really proud of him. We spoke publicly. That's one reason I use a pseudonym now. He was on a really big radio program talking about his recovery. He was the model husband to everyone. Now that I'm out of it, I can see that he was gaslighting me that whole entire time. And so I don't get triggered anymore so much when I hear women who talk about like their amazing husband in recovery or whatever. But but because I lived that and then I lived the nightmare of realizing that years of improvements and goodness and everything was not, it's really, really hard. And I think it's hard for women to hear too. I think it's much easier to hear the story of like, oh, they were doing really well and then they got even better. And there are stories like that. And I hope that your story is like that. How long has it been since your discovery? It's been 25 years now. Oh, well, 25 years is a good run. Yeah, it is. It's a really good run. But not everyone has that. And what you had is that initial trauma of knowing about it. And then that seven years is almost worse than what happened the first time. Yeah, it was. I was actually five because two years in, I found out about his porn use the first time. So it was five years of quote unquote, his fake recovery. And we spoke publicly about it. We were the face of like recovery and everything. Like I remember speaking in front of 1600 people with my abuser who was abusing me at the time and also abusing everybody in the audience because he was lying to me and everybody else and gaslighting everybody. And I think back on that was just like, I get physically like, whoa, like I want to throw up, you know? And so now when women tell me, oh, he's doing so well, he's in recovery, there's this part of me that's like, okay, do you really know what abusive behaviors look like? Because if I knew what I know now back then, I would have recognized it. I hadn't read Why Does He Do That? I hadn't read The Verbally Abusive Relationship by Patricia Evans. Every single person listening to this podcast, like you have to read those two books. They are like the Bibles of abuse. And I will be coming out with a book soon about that so that people can recognize it. Had I known, I think I would have been able to recognize it at the time because I always knew something wasn't quite right. I just thought, well, he's not enough into recovery yet. Like, oh, he's working on this. He's getting better. I thought as this upward graph of like dips, like you go up and down and up and down, but overall the graph is going up rather than a cycle, which is what I see now. With you, if you could go back and talk to your younger self, what would you tell her? Well, you know, I would tell her it's not her fault. I think I would reiterate that to my younger self and to any woman listening and to you, you know, it's not your fault. It's not my fault that we trusted, that I trusted. And it's not our fault that our husbands struggle with any kind of sexual compulsivity, whether it's porn use or other acting out. And it's not our fault if they're compulsive liars and deceive us and gaslight us. Yeah, it's not. And to that point that I made of like, if I knew what I knew now back then, I may have been able to recognize it. It still doesn't make it my fault. No, no. You have that added trauma. You have a secondary injury that's worse than the first. And then you have that five years of trusting. And then that gut feeling of, well, I just thought it was this and it turned out it was something else. I'm curious, what are some of the signs that you saw that now in retrospect, you recognize as some of those emotionally abusive behaviors? 
I hesitate because so many people want to ask me that question. And it takes a long time to be able to see them. I mean, we can say gaslighting, right? But really, truly understanding what that means and what it looks like takes a lot of like examples. It takes a lot of talking to other women. So if any woman is listening and you haven't read like The Verbally Abusive Relationship, for example, by Patricia Evans, I'm like, read that book and then you'll be able to really recognize it because she gives a lot of really clear examples of what that looks like. But it's not just like a 10 minute, okay, here's a list of things I can tell you. When my book comes out, it will have a lot of those specific examples that women can look for. And I think that's the thing about abuse that's so tricky is that everybody thinks they really understand it. Even if you tell someone what gaslighting is, they're like, yeah, got it. Got it. But when you're living in it, actually seeing it is so difficult unless you've got a multitude of concrete examples and you're also sort of tuned into a network of other victims who share their stories and you can start recognizing it for what it is, which is why we run our daily support group. Yes. Another good help support for that, recognizing that, is a trauma-informed therapist. So somebody who's not trained in sex addiction recovery, but who has a trauma background, who's trauma-informed because they're more apt to discern that psychological, verbal, emotional abuse pattern and bring that into the light and into the counseling. Absolutely. Find an abuse specialist. Find someone who's trained in abuse or who knows abuse, is trauma-informed because otherwise they're going to miss it. And also the let's have compassion and not shame him and kind of like ways of coddling their abuser. Let's not make any decisions to like separate, for example, until a year. Well, then you might be asking an abused woman to stay with her abuser for a year. It depends on the situation. But if she's being constantly gaslit, lied to and manipulated, she needs to set some pretty intense boundaries right away. Yes. And really those boundaries are kind of like on a spectrum, just like gaslighting is on a spectrum. Boundaries can be everything from no sexual contact to separate bedrooms to like an in-house separation and out of house separation. So there's a lot of steps women can take to protect themselves while they heal and also to empower themselves. And many times those boundaries are exactly what the man needs for him to be able to deal with his own stuff where he can't can't continually, you know, dump it on her. Yeah. Well, and I always tell women, if you really do love this person, if you really want to be compassionate, setting a boundary that they cannot do this to you anymore is the most compassionate thing that you can do. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Julianne, for coming on today's episode. We really appreciate your insights. I feel bad that I talked so much. I I think I got a little bit triggered today and I I apologize for those of you who heard my story. Sometimes I just still feel like I need to explain myself. It's really interesting. And sometimes I'm fine. I'm like, eh, whatever. But today was one of those days. And um, I appreciate all of you for continuing to listen. And I also wanted to talk about the more I heal, the less things I find triggery like I used to. I, I see that as a sign that I'm healing, but I realize that for some of you, if you're new to this, some of the things I say might be a little triggery. So if you're new and you're also really fresh in your trauma, I recommend starting back at the beginning of this podcast and listening to it from the beginning. You'll hear my progression of my trauma throughout Uh, throughout these four years and uh, it might be helpful to you. 
I am just maybe a step ahead of some of you or maybe just in the same place. Maybe some of you are four years out as well and we're all going through this together. If this podcast is helpful to you, please rate it on iTunes or your other podcasting apps. Every single one of your ratings helps isolated women find us. And if Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group doesn't work for you because the sessions aren't when you can go or for some reason you don't really like a group setting, try individual sessions. You can set an appointment with any one of our amazing coaches at a time that works for you. Know that we have options. You can talk to a professional who really understands this type of abuse really quickly and get the help that you need. Go to btr.org to learn more. And until next week, stay safe out there.